This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. You have a 40-year-old white man, steel worker, Vietnam vet, who's writing very intimate, personal, emotionally raw letters to the then 16-year-old girl. What connects them is that she brutally murdered his grandmother. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. The story of one of America's youngest death row inmates is tragic and complicated. How did a young woman in 1980s Indiana end up in prison? Alex Marr unfolds her incredible book, 70 Times 7, a true story of murder and mercy. It's a journey about racism, anger, and forgiveness. Let's start with the setting. We're talking about 1985, Gary, Indiana. And I'll confess, the only thing I know about Gary, Indiana is the Jackson family. So in 85, what is this area like? Gary really is, it's an American city that was hit hard when the steel industry went down. So in 1985, the city's already really feeling the effects of that. So Back in the 1906 and the years after that, the city was created by U.S. Steel. So it was essentially a company town. They bought up a bunch of acreage on the border of Lake Michigan. There was nothing much there. And they said, look, you know, we're 30 miles to Chicago. We've got the waterfront here for shipping purposes. We're going to build the ultimate steel processing plant right here. And we're going to make a fortune. (laughs) You know, that was the idea. So Gary was actually named after one of the company executives. And the town that they created was really designed to provide for the native-born, local, white corporate executives connected to the mill. Anyone else who came along and wanted to get a job there, they were kind of out of luck because they had to scramble for um, housing at the edges of town. People were living in overcrowded shacks with no plumbing and no paved streets at the edges of town. And I bring all this up because one of the important things to know in the background here is this is a, a town that from day one was heavily segregated in the way that it was built, the way it was organized. You had a lot of uh, Black workers who were migrating up from the South, trying to get away from Jim Crow America, and thinking, you know what, this is great. I get an, you know, a job at a booming steel town and things are going to be different. But the reality was that the level of segregation and racism was comparable to the worst parts of the Jim Crow South. By the time you get to the 80s, Gary's had its first black mayor. Richard Hatcher became the first black mayor when he was elected in 69. Hmm. And what happened as a result of that is the white population kind of panicked and you had 
extreme white flight out of Gary. And so the white tax base and the white businesses really abandoned the city and drained the resources from it. They moved further south and there were huge malls and suburbs where all the businesses went and all of these great, you know, little suburban communities were developed that were totally white. And you ended up with a city that had a robust black community and white community that were separate, but they were both doing well. And it became a city that was destined to fail economically. Crime started rising. Hmm. The steel jobs were declining, right? So you can, you can kind of get a sense of the level of trouble that's in the air in Gary at the time. At the same time, it was, you know, the black community in which Paula Cooper, who's, you know, at the center of the story was, was growing up was vibrant. You know, there were black churches and stores and restaurants and record shops, and they had a number of local papers that were black run. There had been a really strong civil rights movement in the area. But at this point, the economic downturn is, is it's not looking like things are going to turn around. So most of the households that had men working in the mills, and there were a lot of households that did, including Paula's, those were stressed out households. You know, in, nine, in the early 1980s, there were people who worked in the mills that didn't know that within a few years, about like two thirds of them were going to lose their jobs. Wow. It was really interesting. You know, you brought up the Jackson family, but I, in the course of my research, I ended up driving by the old Jackson family home and hmm. the Jacksons still, still own it. It's a tiny home. I think it was probably only two or three rooms for all the kids and the two parents, hmm. you know, to see where Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson grew up. You really feel a sense of, wow, you know, how far they traveled from those beginnings because that neighborhood has seen some tough times. Let's talk about crime. We know in the 70s and the 80s, the whole country struggled with rising crime rates. What specifically was happening in Gary? Like, what really was the thread? Was it people out of work and, you know, reacting with home invasions or or what was happening? There was a whole range of problems that won't surprise anyone. Robberies, home invasions, homicides. At the same time, you know, there were a lot of sensational crimes taking place in the white areas further south. I think it's worth just making note of the fact that a little more hay was made in the local papers of of crimes committed by Black locals. Mm -hmm. You know what I think is important to have a sense of to get the larger context is that Gary is up against the border, the southern border of Lake Michigan, as I mentioned, but it's part of larger Lake County, right? And so Lake County is right up against Illinois and it connects in a way with the Chicago, the greater Chicago metropolitan area. And Lake County is special in that it's always been blue, you know, union blue in a red, red, red state. Indiana is a red state, you know, as, as many of your listeners are aware. Mm-hmm. Lake County was, became kind of infamous for its corruption on the political scene, you know, beyond any crime that was coming out of Gary and its immediate vicinity. It was, it was often compared to Cook County, where Chicago is. And they just said, you know, the the line that people would use is, it's just, you know, the crimes just got fewer zeros on it, Mm. right? That's it. But proportionate to the population, Lake County really gave Chicago a run for their money. And back when Robert F. Kennedy was attorney general of the United States, he had supposedly made this comment that Lake County was easily one of the most corrupt counties in the nation. And a lot of people I met in the legal system in Lake County kind of proudly quoted that line (laughs) 
from RFK. <laughs> um, so that's also important to keep in mind. So there's political ambition, there's political corruption, and then you also have the incredible tension created by segregation, racism, and an economic downturn. And, and the local media really, really loved finding stories that would sell papers. They were also covered by the Chicago press too, mm-hmm. you know, so, so there was a lot of room for local crime to be covered in a sensationalized way at times. At the center of this book is a crime committed by a 15 year old girl, a truly violent crime that took place in the spring of 1985. But actually I chose to start the book with a moment a little further back in time, in 1979, to give the readers a better sense of who Paula was and the kind of childhood she had. So in 79, she was actually only nine years old, and she lived with her sister, Rhonda, who was 12 at the time. They lived in a household that was incredibly unstable. And the scene that opens the book is is a morning in 79 when their mother, Gloria, has kept them up all night in hysterics and has convinced them to go out to the garage with her very early in the morning. And she gets them into the rear passenger seats of the car. It's an old Chevy Vega. She rolls down the garage door. Hmm. She gets in, she pulls down the windows and she starts running the engine. And the girls understand that the intention is that you know they will not be leaving the garage. This is it. They're going to end their lives that morning. And there's something about their mother that has that kind of power over them. And they're such young girls, right? At the last minute, Gloria has a change of heart and carries the girls who've passed out at that point back into the house. And she puts them in their bed, in their bedroom. Rhonda, the older sister, at some point wakes up and can hardly move. And eventually she she regains consciousness and she sees their mother has left a note on the door saying that she's going to finish what she started by herself. So Rhonda ends up calling one of their aunts hysterically. And the aunt says, look, you've got to go to the neighbors and get help. And so she's able to get help from the neighbors who drag Gloria out of the garage and they start performing CPR on her. At a certain point, nine-year-old Paula has wandered out of the house too and sees this happening. And eventually medics come and the fire department and and all of these people are taking turns trying to revive her mother and she becomes hysterical. Rhonda told me that she'd spend a lot of her life wondering how Paula could commit the horrible crime she, she eventually did when she was 15, but that that was the moment that she thought things finally changed for Paula. You know, they'd been living with a certain amount of abuse, but it was that morning that she thinks her sister, something in her changed that she truly became a young, a traumatized young person. And no one took the kids out of the home. You know, it took years before they were even put into emergency foster care or emergency shelter and whatnot. And regularly they were returned to their mother's house. And that is where Paula was living when three weeks later, right after being returned home, three weeks later, she committed this terrible crime. So I say that as just just a way to set this up. What happened when she was 15 is her sister had, had already left home. Her sister was a few years older and had learned that her biological father was was someone else. And so she had a way out of this terrible household. Wow. Her biological father turned out to be a stable, loving guy. And they were able to make that work. Paula did not have any legal 
kind of custody argument for, for going with her sister. She was stuck. And one day at school at Lou Wallace High School in Gary, during lunch break, she uh, got together with a couple of friends who were also ninth and 10th graders. Uh, there was a girl, Karen, who was 16, April, who was 15, and a young girl named Denise, who was just 14. And they all decided to skip school for the rest of the day. They went over to April's house because she lived just a few blocks away in the Glen Park neighborhood. And they sat on her back porch and, and they were just bored. They didn't have any money left uh, to spend at the arcade or to do anything. So they thought they would they would try to rob someone in the neighborhood. April had taken Bible lessons from Ruth Pelkey, who was a 78-year-old woman who lived right across the alleyway from her in Glen Park. And she said, you know, she's she's home alone a lot. Her husband died a few years ago. And she has, you know, she's always helping people out, which means that she has more than she needs. You know, she's probably got extra money and jewelry lying around the house. I think we should talk our way in there and, and see what we can get. Let me go back a moment. So between nine, when this terrible thing happens with her mother, and 15, she continues to live with her mother, I'm assuming, right? Yes. Is the instability the same? Does it get any better for her? Well, so what ends up happening is after Rhonda leaves home, Paula runs away a number of times. She tries to run away. She's regularly picked up by the police and returned home. Her father, Herman Cooper, is physically abusive. One night, she actually runs to the nearest police station and says to them, you know, you've got to help me out. You can see the bruises. You've got to do something for me. And so then she starts getting bounced around foster care. So you have these brief periods. It may be a few weeks. It may be a few months. It may be longer than that, but she's always being brought back home. And anytime she acts out in one of these foster care scenarios, she's sent to juvenile detention hmm. along with kids who actually have a criminal record and who are in there for more serious stuff. So you can kind of see the cycle of, of trauma and, and also exposing her to people who are not going to be a great influence on her and are not going to be a stabilizing force in her life and blaming her for acting out. I'm not saying that she didn't encounter social workers and individuals who, who didn't try to help. Yeah. But all in all, this was a pretty disastrous scenario. Actually, at one point, a social worker assigned to her and her sister Rhonda was asked by Rhonda's biological father, you know, isn't there some way I could make a case to adopt Paula as well? And he was told, you know what, I'm retiring in six months. Ugh. Her mother is crazy and I just don't want to deal with this. So I'm sorry. Ugh. I mean, that's terrible. And can I assume that these other three young women, no one's older than 16, is that right? In this group who goes on and does this terrible thing. It sounds like everybody is probably in a similar situation. Are they all from unstable households also in the neighborhood? So you had a 16-year-old and two 15-year-olds, including Paula. They were all living in, in households where they either had only one parent or the parenting situation was incredibly unstable and volatile. Two of the other girls, Karen, the oldest girl, had at that point already had a baby. Wow. She had gotten pregnant at 12 and had the baby at 13. Her mother had died of cancer. April's mother had died of cancer. And she was kind of being bounced around between households. So, so you really have a scenario for three out of these four girls where there's no stability uh, in terms of the adult presences in their lives. The youngest, Denise, 
she was someone who just hung out with the wrong kids at lunch that day. So you had someone who came from more of a stable family situation who'd been a pretty good student. And it was a case of just the worst circumstance to end up in on that day. It seems though like a big jump from being an unstable household to then saying, let's go rob an old woman who teaches the Bible to young kids. Is there an escalation in, do they have any petty crimes before then? Or is this their first big idea with crime? There were a couple other scenarios where they found a way into neighboring homes and grabbed a few things when someone wasn't home. Nothing that went beyond petty delinquent crime. I think one of the girls had had a a shoplifting incident on her record, but that's a far cry from violent crime, mm-hmm. right? So this this was just an enormous, enormous leap. And I think it's really important to keep in mind something that the that I really wrestled with in the book was I wanted to make clear how horrific this crime was Mm -hmm. to also give a sense of Paula's background. I am not saying that this is, this is an excuse for what she did. And, and also her, her older sister, Rhonda, who I did eventually get to know quite well through the, the course of researching this story. She doesn't feel that way either that no one, no one involved is trying to say um, that there is a legitimate explanation for what happened that afternoon. Yeah. I think what readers will hopefully do is they'll put themselves in the mindset of, okay, if this happened in my community, in my neighborhood, what would my response be? Because I think that's the more important question, right? Yeah. She's 15. She commits murder in this horrific way that's unjustifiable, but she's still a kid and you cannot change that fact what is the right response Mm -hmm. as a community or as the prosecutor in Lake County, for instance, who becomes a pretty big character. So we're talking about a spring day in 1985 in Gary, Indiana, and you have these four girls, two 15-year-olds, a 16-year-old, and a 14-year-old, and they think that they are going to go, and there's a woman who lives at home, Ruth Pelkey, and she's 78 unarmed, and it will be easy for them to go in and rob her, nobody had money, and walk out. I have to assume the intention was not to murder her. Is that right? What's interesting is is the prosecutor, Jack Crawford, and his deputy who handled the case, they really pushed a narrative that this was premeditated. This was a premeditated robbery and murder. I found that to be total nonsense. It seemed obvious to me that these girls walked in there to rob this elderly woman so they could go off and have some fun. I'm fairly convinced that Paula's actions and the way in which those escalated came as a shock to everyone in that house. And the violence ratcheted up from there. There's research that's been done in much more recent years, not the kind of research we had in the 80s, as to how heightened group dynamics can become between juveniles when you have a group of teenagers together and one of them takes part in high-risk behavior. The rest of the group is far more likely to jump on board, Hmm. right? And you have a kind of runaway train scenario that has the possibility for unfolding. Um, Again, this is not an excuse. It's just trying to understand what might have happened in that house in May of 1985. I spent five years researching this book and no one really knows what happened or why who's still alive. 
So the four of them head over that day in May, and one of them is armed. Right. So what happens is when Paula, Karen, and Denise go over to April's house, April takes a a knife out of the kitchen drawer and says, you know, when you go over there, you can scare Mrs. Pelkey with this. Hmm. Paula takes the knife and she hides it under her jean jacket. April, knowing that she already has a relationship with Mrs. Pelkey, who taught her Bible studies, who was nice to her after her mother died, who made lunch for her, who took her to church a couple times. April decides it's less complicated if she stays behind because there's that sort of recognition that they can avoid. Mm -hmm. The other girls don't actually know about the relationship April has with Mrs. Pelkey already. And I found that to be really a disturbing part of the background of this crime. So the three others walk across the alley and they go up the front steps of Mrs. Pelkey's house and they knock on the door and eventually they are allowed in. They say that, you know, we need you to write down some information about Bible study. Uh, uh, My aunt wants to know when it is and maybe you could write it down for us. Something along those lines. She lets them in and she says, okay, well, I'm going to just get some note paper. And they follow her through the house and into her dining room. And she's got a little secretary desk up against the wall. And as she's turned around to start writing writing a note for them, Paula picks up a paperweight, a glass paperweight, and hits her in the head and Mrs. Pelkey falls to the floor. Paula described this moment later, that there was this moment where her hair was so white and then there was the red suddenly of, mm. of the woman starting to bleed on her head. From the way in which she later described the incident, it sounds like that was a very deep triggering moment for Paula. And she went to find the knife in her jacket, which was somewhere within reach. And she pushed Mrs. Pelkey down and began stabbing her. And it it was clearly an extremely heightened, irrational moment because she ultimately stabbed Mrs. Pelkey 33 times. Wow. There was nothing about this where they were threatening her for her money and something went a little too far. It it went way beyond that. And the none of the other girls went for help. They eventually ransacked the house and were only able to find about $10 and um, the keys to Mrs. Pelkey's Plymouth. So they ended up leaving and leaving Mrs. Pelkey on the floor and uh, going for a joyride in her Plymouth. They were not all brought in until a couple days later. Paula had a doctor's note with a prescription for birth control in the pocket of her jacket, and she'd left that behind at the scene. Wow. I mean, there were there were a number of factors at the scene of the crime that made clear that these were kids. There were some details that, you know, leaving your jacket with, with identifying information in it behind. Yeah. There was a cereal box that had been left open on the counter in the kitchen, where clearly one of them had a snack somewhere in the middle of all of this. And it's just really terrible. And and they came away with nothing. It was it was a completely chaotic crime committed by kids. How was this discovered? Does one of Mrs. Pelkey's kids come over or is there a welfare check? Mrs. Pelkey had a number of grown stepkids who lived in the area and she was well beloved by all of them and had become really like a deep part of her that family's life when she married their father. So she had a number of stepkids and, and grandkids uh, who lived nearby. And so her stepson, Bob Pelkey, 
was concerned that she hadn't answered the phone because they would regularly talk on the phone. So he stopped over midday. It was the next day. He stopped in midday and he looked through this opening in the mail slot when she didn't answer. And he saw sort of like a mess where sofa cushions and papers had been thrown everywhere, right? This was absolutely not, you know, she was an extremely meticulous woman and immediately he knew something was wrong. And so he found the extra key and let himself in and he discovered Ruth. He had to run down the street, knocking on doors. It was the middle of the day. Most people weren't home. They were at work until he could find someone who who would be able to call the police because the girls had also torn the phone out of the phone jack out of the wall. It's a terrible crime to have to think about and grapple with. And there were various moments where I was immersed in understanding Paula's situation and how young she was and her background. And I, I would make sure to go over occasionally the details of the crime. Yeah, I've seen the crime scene photos. They're just terrible. I thought it was really important not to fall under the spell of the prosecutor on the one hand, but also not to forget what actually took place that day. Mm -hmm. And so how do you maneuver that? And it makes what happened next even more extraordinary. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I think what is extraordinary about this story and what is so important to grapple with, she was a kid. She was 15 years old, which I think makes any assessment of her culpability a lot more complex. And that was something that I dove headlong into, just grappling with that question, what does it mean when a child commits a violent crime? And what does our response to that crime say about us? If we are willing to apply the ultimate punishment to a juvenile, to a teenager, what does that say about us as a culture, a society? What does that say about our true goals in our criminal justice system? Because she was, it was possible to sentence teenagers to death in 1985, it was it was possible all the way up until 2005, which was a lot more recent than I think a lot of people realize. So within less than a year, Paula Cooper had been sentenced to death. The reaction in the local media was very much about the shock of her crime and sort of the sense that, you know, what is society coming to that, that young people can be involved in such a horrific crime, right? That was the tenor of the coverage. It was not shock at the fact that we had just sentenced a kid to the electric chair, right? That was not part of the coverage. And it, it took, it took a little while for the tables to turn. It actually took the European media becoming aware of the fact that a 15 year old girl had just been sentenced to death in the United States. 
to change the media conversation around the crime hmm. in the United States. So I actually tracked down, it came down to ultimately two Italian journalists who caught wind of this through a tiny line item somewhere in the middle of a, an issue of USA Today while they were traveling. They caught wind of her sentence and convinced their editors back in, in Rome and in Florence to fund their travel to Gary to look into what the situation was. So they ended up having front page stories in Italy that were picked up around Europe. It became a sensation as a story in Italy for the exact opposite reason that it did in the US and the Midwest. Then the media here started covering the fact that we were being shamed. Indiana specifically was being shamed by the European press for this decision, right? And so it turned the tables on this issue and made it a much more complex conversation. Something else that took place within a few months of Paula's death sentence is I think possibly the most extraordinary part of this story. A man named Bill Pelkey, who was the adult grandson of the victim, Ruth Pelkey, decided against the wishes of his family, his friends, his congregation, his coworkers, really truly against the, the wishes of everyone he knew, he decided to publicly forgive Paula for killing his grandmother. Wow. He had a revelation that his grandmother would not want this girl killed in her name. And once that conviction came to him, he wouldn't let it go. And this was a guy who didn't have a political bone in his body. He was not someone who was used to making waves. He was a crane operator in a steel mill, Bethlehem Steel in Portage, Indiana, just outside Gary. He'd been a crane operator there for a couple decades. He just, you know, punched the clock, came home, cashed his check. He didn't want trouble. Yeah. And one night up in the crane, he was there doing um, a late shift. He'd been called in. And, and for some reason, there was no work. So he was alone, hovering up above this warehouse in the dark. And he started thinking about everything that had taken place over the last few months, how he'd been grieving the death of his grandmother but also how he felt that he'd really messed up his own life. Hmm. He had just filed for bankruptcy. He was on his way to losing his live-in girlfriend, Judy, who he'd, he'd, he'd fallen so deeply in love with. He'd gotten divorced to his first wife. You know, and so he he was just feeling, you know, on top of that, I think I'm, I'm about to disappoint my grandmother. Mm -hmm. I'm about to let something else terrible happen. Well, and he's making a series of bad decisions that's where he's ending up is that there's a divorce and the girlfriend and the bankruptcy. And I'm sure it occurs to him how easy it is to make bad decisions. You know, I mean, we're human. That's what happens. Does he feel any sort of parallel in any way to the girls or at Paula? Well, there's something interesting. I think, I think sometimes, you know, the human mind, when you're alone, you're in the dark, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're emotionally depleted. You know, that was the state he was in you start to kind of free associate in your mind. And he's up there in this crane cab and he he has this image for the first time. He has this image of Paula Cooper on death row. Mm. He was there in court. He took time off from work to be there in court the day she was given the death sentence because she he, there was a rumor that that's how it was going to go. And he wanted to be there to see the girl who had killed his grandmother get death. And this is the first time really that he'd thought about that. And he thought to himself, you know, 
Her cell's probably the size of this cab. Mm. She's probably sitting in the dark. She's alone. And she's far more desperate than I will ever be, regardless of how I feel about all of the fuck-ups in my life, right? This is someone who's in a far worse situation. And then he, he saw his grandmother the way she was before her death. There was a family photo that had been used in a lot of the press around her murder. It's like one of those studio portrait, kind of Midwestern studio portrait photos, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. where everyone's got their hair perfect and they're done up for, for the session. And he pictures his grandmother and he pictures her weeping. And it's, it's really kind of, it reminded me of those moments where, where people, people imagine they've seen the Virgin Mary crying. They see a statue of a Catholic saint crying, right? It's it, it was a spiritual moment for him. And he believed that this image came to him because his grandmother would have wept at the idea of this young girl being executed in her name. He walks away that night. He leaves the mill feeling for the first time that he actually has a sense of purpose in his life. He has a mission now. The next thing he's going to do is he's going to reach out and he's going to write to this girl on death row and he's going to figure out what he can do to help her. And he ends up the next day sitting down writing a letter and mailing it to the teenage kid who murdered his grandmother. If we take one step back, because I've been curious about this, how would you describe Paula's demeanor through this whole thing once she's caught? Is there a sense in the court or in jail of remorse or understanding Or is she so hardened based on her background and now being a 15-year-old in a women's prison that there's no way to get through to her? I spent some time wrestling with the question of whether or not Paula had any remorse for her crime. But I also asked myself how capable a teenager is of remorse, or at least the kind of remorse that would be recognizable to an adult. I don't have the answer to that. I know that at her sentencing hearing, you know, she received her, her public defender did not do a great job. His performance was thin at best. And I think that going by the court transcripts, I don't think Paula was coached at all as to how to behave in a courtroom and the kinds of statements that you should try to make in that scenario. I think she was angry. I think she was overwhelmed. The judge ultimately commented on what seemed like her lack of remorse at the time. I think it took her a long time to understand what she had done. She ended up having a relationship with Bill Pelkey. They had a correspondence that was very deep and went on for years and years and years. Wow. And I was able to read hundreds of letters between them, maybe about a, you know, Nine months to a year into their correspondence, I started to feel that that she was genuinely trying to express to him her shock at what she had done and how terrible it was that she had taken this special person from his life. You know, and, and one of the first things Bill wrote to her about is he said, I want to tell you about my grandmother. Hmm. You know, he would just try to describe how much she was loved and the people in her life and what made her special to him. And, and eventually he sent her a photo of his grandmother, you know, and so part of the process on Bill's end was trying to get her to understand what she had done. He never came right out and said, you know, I need to know why you did what you did. 
I'm sure he realized that she probably didn't know that it was just this sort of, you know, the background. It's everything, everything happening in her life. But what role is Bill playing to Paula? Why answer his letter, letters at all and then start to show some sort of softening and rem- hundreds of letters over the years? Look, I think, honestly, something that drew me in and and what really, really got its hooks into me was, I mean, just think about it. You have a 40-year-old white man, steel worker, Vietnam vet, who's writing very intimate, personal, emotionally raw letters to the then 16-year-old girl, Black girl from Gary, Mm. from a community he has nothing in common with, who's a runaway from an abusive home. And what connects them is that she she brutally murdered his grandmother. Can you imagine, like, what is that correspondence? And I, I, I was so drawn into that. To me, that had the, the psychological complexity of a novel. And there was a degree to which, at first, Bill had the power, in a way, because he was extending his generous forgiveness towards this girl in a desperate situation. Mm-hmm. But there were moments where Bill would write to Paula and confess how tough of a time he was having in his breakup with Judy. Hmm. And she would write back with friendly advice. It was unlike any other relationship that either of them had ever had. And I think that's what opened them both up. That was something I found totally extraordinary. Another topic, but worth noting, the letters also proved to me that even though Paula had bounced around nine to nine or 10 schools before her arrest, had skipped classes, all the time. She really had no meaningful education. Within the first year of writing these letters, she had taught herself to write. She expressed herself beautifully. Mm. She had this raw kind of weird sense of humor that came out. She was very brave. She wrote sassy letters to the ACLU. (laughs) The story takes on this incredible scope where she's, she literally wrote a letter directly to Pope John Paul II, and he received it personally. You know, you you see Paula's voice evolving and her intelligence. And I really felt the loss of what she could have become under a different circumstance. Wow. After she was sentenced to death, her case was taken up by an appellate public defender in Lake County, Bill Touche, who also brought on board Monica Foster, who was a, a young attorney a few years out of law school, honestly, not that many years older than Paula herself. And both of them worked passionately on on Paula's behalf. And Monica, when she first went to visit Paula on death row, was so, was honestly frightened. You know, she admitted that to me, that she thought she was going to go and have a meeting with someone who who was almost like an animal. Hmm. She couldn't imagine what kind of young person was capable of committing such a terrible crime. And instead, she she met a girl who was overwhelmed, probably clinically depressed, who could not stop weeping during their meeting and who was convinced that because she'd been sentenced to death, she was going to be carried off to the death house at any moment. No one had explained to her and she was young enough. She had no understanding of the system, right? No one had explained to her, no, no, there's a process. She honestly woke up every day thinking that that might be the day she was taken to the electric chair. And Monica had to be the one to sort of try to walk her through, no, this is how the system works. Mm-hmm. It's going to be years. We have a lot of options and you have to calm down. I bring Monica up 
because she then took it upon herself with her very modest kind of green attorney's salary to pay for an independent therapist for Paula, to pay for her to have a tutor, to pay for her education at first. And it was through that relationship that Paula, you can almost, almost to the date when she starts having those conversations with, with Monica, she starts writing in her letters to Bill about the future. Positive role models. Yeah. When I get out, I might become a businesswoman or, you know, whatever the fantasy of the week was. But up until that point, there was no, there was no looking ahead. There was only today, 23 hours in the same cell. Because also she was, you know, she was a very, very young person being kept in in total segregation. Let's talk about the issue with Bill Pelkey's family. Is it too simplistic to say that they all said, Bill, why are you doing this? This is infuriating us. You're trampling on, you know, Ruth's memory. How could you support this killer? How could you write her and, you know, try to be close to her? Was that sort of their reaction? Oh, absolutely. It was discussed confusion, total alienation, heartache. I sympathize with them feeling really sideswiped by this. They, They just did not see this decision coming, especially Bill's parents. And so his father, Bob, remember, is the one who discovered Ruth's body on the carpet in the dining room. I mean, it was a terrible situation. He testified in the hearings of all four girls and made very clear that he was speaking on behalf of the family, that they wanted the ultimate punishment for this terrible crime, and that was that. He spoke as a devout Christian, as uh, a war veteran. You know, this our country should not allow a crime like this to go unpunished. And and he he was made to believe in part by the prosecutor that if this girl was not sentenced to death, it would not be sufficient. Life in prison was not what he was looking for. They wanted to send a message. There were ultimately some headlines in local papers, sometimes on the front page, that pitted Robert Pelkey versus Bill Pelkey, his son. And they would have pull quotes, the answer is forgiveness from Bill. And then his father, you know, my son is of the generation that thinks that people shouldn't have to pay for what they've done. Ultimately, within several months, Bill ended up having a conversation in private with a a cousin of his who he loved dearly. And she revealed to him, you know, I've been reading the coverage in the newspapers and I want you to know that I feel the same way. Mm. I don't want this girl's life to be taken. And I do think that our grandmother would have forgiven her. You know, and then there was another family member, right? And and so there were people who quietly, they didn't want to hurt the rest of the family. So they had, they had really not engaged in this discussion, but they reached out to him personally. Mm-hmm. Many years later, Bill and, and his father reconciled around this. Bill had such strength of conviction around this that he was willing to take the risk of, of breaking apart the rest of his family. So they are writing to each other for years, Paula and Bill. Ultimately, what happens with all of this? And tell me what happens with the other girls, too, because I don't think we talked about their sentences. But really, where do we end up over the next 20, 30 years with this case? The other three girls, Karen, April, and Denise, all received serious prison sentences. Death was only on the table 
ultimately for Paula. Karen had a capital charge, but she she was not sentenced to death. Paula's case ultimately goes up to the state Supreme Court in Indiana. And because of really risky, brave actions taken by a number of different characters we meet along the way, mm-hmm. a scenario is set up where this case is kind of teed up for the Indiana Supreme Court. And they have a way by resting on the state constitution and also a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision at the time to commute her sentence. Wow. So Paula is instead given a very long prison sentence, 60 years, which in Indiana realistically is about half that amount of time if you have good conduct in prison. And time served, right? So she had already been in for how long? At that point, uh, a couple years. And what's interesting is I think Paula's reaction to it was incredibly mixed because she understood that she'd won, so to speak. But at that point, she was 18 or 19 years old. You know, she'd been on death row for two and a half, three years. To hear that you're going to spend 30 years in prison sounded to her a little bit like the rest of her life. Hmm. I mean, that's not even the halfway point of the book, I will say, because the story evolves and becomes more complex. Bill Pelkey ends up taking this kind of self-transformation that occurred through the relationship he had with Paula Cooper, his identity now is forever changed. He can't just go back to clocking in at the mill and keeping his head down. He now wants to change the criminal justice system. He wants to talk about the death penalty as someone who's a murder victim's family member. And he begins reaching out and actually discovering one by one other murder victims' family members around the country who also did not want death for the person who killed their loved one, right? And at the time, these people were unicorns, you know? And this was not, you were not seeing murder victims' family members in the public eye as as voices in the justice system. And part of that was because a lot of, you know, the shame that they felt in their community, they were pariahs in, in a lot of cases, but also the, the prosecutor who handled their case did not want a family member who was going to come forward and challenge his agenda. Yeah. For someone who's personally really um, fascinated by the many facets of our criminal justice system, there was, I, I do want to mention, there was this other piece of it for me, which is I'd, I'd never really, I'd never really before had the palpable sense of how tough this kind of work can be. Hmm. You have someone like Monica Foster who grows to really care about Paula Cooper. And she goes on to represent other people who are possibly up for death, knowing each time that you can lose your client, this person you have a years-long relationship with. Mm -hmm. And it will be very hard for you to convince yourself that some part of that wasn't your fault. That added another human dimension to the process for me. And also to see members of the media you know, I mentioned these two Italian journalists, for instance, who chose to amplify a different side to the headline and actually ended up making a difference as a result. You know, there really are these opportunities to change the course of events for the better. And you see that in different different moments in this story where someone chooses to make an unconventional choice. They choose to forgive in a scenario in which that's considered 
incredibly out there. They choose to make an effort to kind of step out of their lane and jump in the fray with this incredibly fraught circumstance, right? Ultimately, with all that in mind, Paula's case, you know, I connect the dots between her case and all the issues involved with that, all the way up to the end of the death penalty for juveniles in this country in 2005, because a number of the players actually are the same. So that was really remarkable to see how you start with one crime on one corner in Gary, Indiana, and you end up impacting the fates of a lot of teenagers in this country. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.